This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast. On this week's podcast, we're going to look forward to the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring. But if you're looking for an upgrade to your motorcycle, check out the Fit My Bike option on Renthal.com. Just select the make, model and year, and they'll do the rest to give you the list of available parts. Myself, Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison are on the pod this week. Adam's in transit from MXGP in Sweden, but uh, it's going to be a busy show all the same because David sat down for 20 minutes with Jack Miller, so we're going to bring that to you at the end of the show. And David, it's uh, been a bit of a trek for you. You've had Silverstone a week back home and uh, now you're able to get yourself back to the Netherlands. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, after I'm tired out after all those hills in that England there. Uh, so it's nice to be back somewhere flat. It was actually lovely riding home through uh, uh, alongside all of the rivers in Holland, the, the the major rivers, and it was just it was very charming. I enjoyed it a lot. Very therapeutic, and uh, let's be honest, for one man desperately in need of therapy, Neil Morrison. How's things? Things are good, Steve. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to get back to the sun after uh, bitching and sniping about the heat. I was then bitching and sniping about the rain every day when I was back in the UK for two weeks um, at the start of August. And I'm back to the heat again. So uh, obviously, I'm, uh, I can't wait to get rid of it. So no, things are good. I uh, had a nice break after Silverstone. And uh, I believe, um, well, I won't be the, the sole boots on the ground this weekend. Adam will be there as well as Dave isn't going. Um, cost just too high of Austria nowadays, Dave? Yeah, and also the yurt wasn't available, the, the yurt that I stayed in last year. So, um, uh, yeah, basically, it is. A lot of people actually stay in Graz, which is about, I don't know, what, an hour, hour and a bit away or something. Um, it's just a bit of a ridiculously located um, racetrack. It's, I mean, the, the, the facilities are lovely. Uh, but the track is a bit shit, and the um, uh, and you have to drive for ages to find something. Also, the fact that it's sort of in the middle of the summer when there's a lot of people already in Austria doing their sort of their summer mountain holiday hiking and cycling and uh, general outdoorsy type stuff is uh, makes it even more difficult to find places to stay. Well, obviously, Dave, one of the big things that's a talking point is places to stay for next year in MotoGP and KTM looking for an extra couple of bikes on the grid. And there was a lot of chat about that this week. Obviously, there was Pit Byer on Service TV previewing the Austrian Grand Prix and he was on with Mark Marquez. And one of the big talking points was what are KTM going to do? They've got five riders under contract for four seats for next year, how they're going to fit everyone in and then also whether or not Mark's an option for their future as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pit Barrow was on the, I think it's called the Hangar 7 programme, which is a big uh, show on Service TV, which is the Austrian broadcaster, which covers MotoGP. Um, he was talking about uh, at in Austria, he, they're going to ask Dorna once again if they can have two more bikes uh, on the grid for next year. Um, there, there are two slots there. It is somewhat... Um, sort of confusing why Dorna are saying that they're keeping those two slots for a factory team because there aren't any factory teams that want to enter. Um, Kawasaki do very well in World Superbikes. They have no interest in joining MotoGP. BMW make a, uh, you know, they get a massive amount of sponsorship or exposure just by sponsoring the, uh, sponsoring MotoGP. You know, you can't move for BMW logos and their safety cars and safety bikes and, uh, you know, the BMW M Award for Best Qualifier. 
Um, so yeah, it, it, I, I can't see another manufacturer interested, um, and it makes a lot. It makes no sense to have uh, to not have sort of twenty four bikes when we can do it. The only reason for not doing it is because that would cost Dorna something in the region of I don't know five, six, seven million um, euros in in subsidies. It's one of those situations, though, Neil, where the subsidies obviously are there to support independent teams in the championship to be able to cover the cost for leasing bikes, helping them with freight, whatever it is. But there's obviously ways and means around that if there's motivation for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you would have to say there, there should be motivation for it because it would bring someone like Pedro Acosta into the championship, which I think it would be something um, that would be a... Uh, something that Dorna would want to have. Um, he's a character. He's one of the more notable riders in Spain at the moment. I think probably the most notable behind Marc Marquez, which is kind of a crazy thing to say when you have someone like Jorge Martin actually fighting for the MotoGP World Championship. But Acosta's a big character. He's uh, he's on a really interesting trajectory and he's a big story. Um, so yeah, you would think that trying to get him into the, the, the premier class um, and having a seat for him um, would be a bit of a motivator. And it does sound like, you know, KTM aren't going to give this up easily. They said they were going to speak to Dorna this weekend in Austria. Obviously, the, the round after Austria is in Barcelona. And I think uh, Pitt also mentioned that he was going to come to the Dorna offices and try and do a bit of negotiating there. So it seems like this is something that um, they plan to they plan to pursue. Um, a bit of haranguing uh, could be on the cards in the next couple of weeks. Dave, we've obviously heard an awful lot over and we've talked a lot over the last couple of years about the fact that Gas Gas came in, Husqvarna, MV Augusta, they're all under the same brand as KTM. They're all owned same group. So there is the possibility to come them in, rebrand teams, and at least it's it gives an opportunity for something like that. Yeah, yes, again, I mean, it, it makes, there's there's no reason why KTM couldn't come in and uh, and promote the Husqvarna brand because, you know, it is a great, um, it's a great platform for, for promoting, uh, for, you know, for, for promoting brands. That's why, that's why manufacturers go racing. It is mainly a, a public relations exercise, you know, to actually get the, to have that association with performance, with speed, um, with the glamour of the uh, of the series. So it makes no sense why they. Whoa, 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 whoa! The glamour of the series. You just said that you can't go to Austria because the yurt isn't available, Dave. <laughs> it's a very glamorous yurt, you know. I mean, it's. Uh... It was uh, it was uh, it was in very good nick. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, but I mean th- th- that's that's the point. They're there to help sell bikes. And th- this is why uh, MotoGP is. This is why manufacturers are are, are getting involved. Um, KTM want to use this as a branding exercise, so it makes no sense. I mean, you know, if Dorna doesn't want to pay the, a, a private team the subsidies, um, I believe they didn't do that. For or I want to say Aprilia when it was Grassini Aprilia, but I'm not entirely sure. There was certainly there was one one team which came in uh, and they were told, you know, you can come in, but we're not you, you're not going to get any money. Um, that's an option for Dorna. Dorna can always can always do that. They can also do it just as a as a, as a temporary thing. Uh, I think there's been talk of, for example, MV Augusta uh, coming in, but not coming in using a KTM RC16. Uh, but actually, you know, developing and building a MotoGP bike. But obviously, that's a much, much more difficult proposition now because of the amount of money you have to spend on aerodynamics and the vehicle dynamics and all the rest of it just to be competitive. It's very difficult to just, you know, like build. You can't just build a really good bike and, and be competitive. You need so much more. 
yeah, I suppose, Neil, for a MotoGP bike, you can't just go to the Fit My Bike option on rental and figure everything <laughs> out. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Unbelievably so, Steve. Yeah, that's not to put down the Fit My Bike option on, on rental.com, but um, <laughs> not at all. But uh, yeah, it is a slightly more complicated. What is the most important thing you need to be fast in Austria then, Neil? Uh, top speed doesn't uh, doesn't hurt for sure, um, although that is maybe not quite as, as important as it was uh, when we were using the old configuration of the Rebel Ring. Obviously, we had the, the chicane put in between turns one and two, three um, for last year's race, and we saw Fabio Quartararo have a really good, really good ride, um, splitting the Ducatis on the podium. Um, obviously, the Yamaha was well done in top speed then, um, but obviously grunt, uh, strong acceleration, and really strong performance on on the brakes because you have uh, so many heavy, heavy, heavy braking points on this track. Turn one, now into turn two in the chicane, up at the top of the hill, then down into the old turn four, uh, the final two turns as well. Um, so, yeah, I think um, grunt and, and, and braking uh, stability, braking capacity, I think is, uh, is definitely high on the list. Yeah, because um, the, Austria is the only track where they, or it's one of the tracks where they run the new 355 millimeter uh, brakes, uh, brake, uh, brake discs. You know, I mean, 355 is absolutely massive. And they also run special cooling fins on those. So that's the amount of heat that, that, that they're actually generating, and especially into turn one. Uh, down into uh, down into turn four that that takes a lot puts a lot of energy into uh, into the brakes and because it's such a short lap it, they don't really get that much of a chance to uh, sort of uh, cool off so yeah braking performance is really difficult acceleration is really really important just sort of acceleration in low gears um, one of the things which we saw um Yamaha did. One of the reasons the Fabio Quartararo had such a good race last year is because they put the chicane in, um, they Yamaha were able to drop the gearing a little bit because going so you know like the, the top speed becomes became slightly less important. They could he, they, they could drop the gearing a little bit, gear it a little bit lower and get better drive, and it made it that much easier because you need the lower gearing to get through the chicane. Um, and because of that, it, it allowed them to be a little bit more competitive. Neil, obviously this weekend, one of the key things we're going to keep an eye on is Mark Marquez's performances. And when you look at him in Austria, he's always been relatively competitive, but it's one of those rare tracks that he hasn't actually won a race at. And given the comments that we've been hearing for his future, Pit Byer in that Hangar 7 show was commenting that Mark won't be with KTM for next season. But obviously it's a question now of when, if, when rather than if Mark's going to put himself in a position to leave Honda. Uh, yeah, I know Mark is, you know, on that Hangar 7 show, he once again reiterated that he has a contract for next year with Honda. Um, you know, it does look as though that that is going to be the, the place where he will, he will remain uh, in 2024. Um, but obviously a really interesting, I think, development over the last week was probably the, the interview that, um, Japanese journalist Akira Nashimura, uh, did with, um, HRC's president. Um, which uh, is now, I believe, uh, featuring on motormatters.com. Um, but uh, that is basically um, in that you can see that HRC has no plans to withdraw. I think there were some serious fears that earlier in the year that uh, that could be a possibility in, in, in MotoGP. Um, but um, HRC kind of reaffirmed that they want to stay and, um, you know, they have a, a kind of plan in place to try and get themselves out of this, uh, this desperate situation. The most interesting thing for that, 
to me reading the interview was um, that a sort of HRC is now integrated. H they used to have two separate uh, divisions, you know, like a car racing, um, a racing department and an HRC, which was bikes. Uh, there's now a single HRC for both uh, four wheels and two wheels. Um, and that should make it better, you know, it should make it easier for knowledge transfer for people on the motorcycle racing side to get some expertise from the uh, from the car racing side and vice versa uh, and given the importance of aero i think you know that that's a really really big deal it doesn't mean that they're going to be competitive sort of you know next week um but it should mean that they're going to be better uh, sort of competitive that they that there is at least now the hope that they're going to be competitive yeah and at least there appears to be a plan in place i feel before the summer break, there was a fear that Honda was just rudderless and drifting off into obscurity without any idea or, or reason why um, back at the headquarters in Japan. But reading that interview, there is at least, uh, or there does sound as though there's a plan in place to try and get themselves out of this mess. Um, and they are committed to, to sticking to this plan. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's probably good news reading that. Good news for the series because it did uh, allay some fears that, uh, you know, Honda would be on their way. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Neil, because one of the big talking points recently in the Superbike paddock has been Honda's future because the project has been such a disappointment for them compared to what their expectations were and whether or not that program is going to continue for the next few years. So that's one of the things that remains to be seen. Obviously, their Suzuka success shows that the Fireblade can be competitive. The the, the first four bikes in the initial finish, uh, final positions were all Honda Fireblades. But whether or not they'll keep the Superbike program running as it is, is a big question mark that when we come back after the summer break, everyone's kind of expecting to have an answer to it. But it was interesting in the last couple of rounds, there's been more and more rumours and murmurs about Honda's future. I mean, uh, they're running on Bridgestones in, at Suzuka, are they not? Am I, uh, am I correct in saying that, Steve? Yeah, what's interesting about it is when you talk to people involved in all the different projects for Honda, whether it's BSB, World Endurance, World Superbikes, whatever it is, it's always quite interesting that it almost seems, and myself and Gordo have talked about it quite a bit on the pod over the, the last few months, it almost seems as if HRC and World Superbikes have gone down a completely different path to everyone else. And I spoke to some of the riders that jumped onto the Suzuka spec and they said that the bike just felt like a like a normal bike. It, it, it felt like it was predictable. It did what they were expecting, which then indicates that maybe the World Superbike isn't doing that. And they've obviously gone down a very different path with the Superbike in world spec compared to the other championships. And maybe that's what's causing them a bit more of an issue rather than it just being a case of we'll throw the Bridgestones on and suddenly the bike's transformed. I think it's it's one of those ones where in the past you probably would have considered that to be more of an issue. But now it looks like they've just they've just got to figure out how to make a Superbike program work. And that's one of the things that for that team bringing in so much expertise from the MotoGP paddock it was always going to be a sink or swim thing and it was always going to be a massive success with fresh ideas and new ways of working or else it was going to be what the project's been, which is a bit disappointing. It is interesting that um, the, you know, like both these projects being basically run by the same sort of people, by the same team. Um, and uh, uh, and it's not it's just not doing so well. It's you, you know it, it's just not succeeding. And it also shows you that you know these are two completely different disciplines. You know, like MotoGP and World Superbikes. Yes, it's it, it's racing motorbikes, but it's still 
different sports requiring di- a different emphasis on different areas. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things when you talk to riders, they say the same. They say that like look, the quality in World Superbikes is very high. The level is much higher than it's been at any stage since I got involved in 2016. But it is still a, a step below MotoGP. MotoGP is the premier class. MotoGP is where everyone wants to be. But Superbikes, it has its it has its virtues as well. And it's a very different championship. It's a very different ethos in it. But there is that thing where not everything is to that nth degree like it is in MotoGP. But that's what happens with a prototype class rather than a production class. Yeah, I mean, you have to learn to ride around uh, stuff on a Superbike. You can't, uh, I mean, you know, you can't adjust the bike to, to fix the problem. Um, because, you know, basically you are still racing motorcycles, which uh, manufacturers are trying to sell to, uh, you know, ordinary customers rather than building a very specific motorcycle to do a very specific task. Uh, and you're only you know going to build sort of like four or five of them per every year. Well, I always think Gordo's point about it is probably the best way to look at it. A MotoGP bike's job is only to be as fast as possible for 40 minutes. A World Superbike's job is to be as fast as possible around a racetrack, but also deal with potholes on a B road and (laughs) deal with real world conditions of having to be able to to be used in freezing temperatures and 40 degrees. So it needs to have a big operating window. It needs to have very different requirements. And sometimes it just leads to a bit of difficulties. That's where I think that potentially for next year, new regulations should help to even things up but we have to wait and see what those are going to be. And Neil, obviously, that's one of the big things for a superbike to be competitive for Honda. One of the other things is they need the riders, they need the teams, they need the the data to be able to improve. And then you wait and see what happens. Because if you look at Yamaha with their new project for next year with new engines and different people coming in, you do need fresh ideas. Uh, you do need fresh ideas indeed yeah and Yamaha have uh, I guess reiterated their desire to have a satellite team in MotoGP Um, I mean it's no secret that they are currently disadvantaged by having just two bikes on the grid when you compare it to the situation over at Ducati Um, there seems to have been quite a few comments from uh, rival manufacturers noting just how much of an advantage Ducati have having eight different bikes on the grid and having uh, the pool of, of different data from all eight riders to basically use during a weekend. Um, so Yamaha, I think, um, have reiterated their desire to maybe work with VR46 in the future. They know that that's not really going to happen in 2024. Um, but 2025 is maybe something that could be a realistic option for them. So um, something to keep our eyes on. The only thing is Yamaha will have to show a drastic, drastic performance upgrade on what they have been over the last... 18 months, two years, uh, to make VR46 want to use them. Because why, if you're in your right mind, would you move away from Ducati at the moment? Um, if you are the owner of a satellite team, you just would not do it. Because having a Ducati is a guarantee of having two riders that can fight for the podium every week. Um, so, you know, Yamaha have uh, a lot of work to do in the next 6 to 12 months to, to really make it's a, uh, a viable option for a satellite team to want to, to make that switch in the future. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Lynn Jarvis in the Silverstone and he said very much that, you know, basically, yes, <clears throat> you know, it's too late to have a, a satellite bike for 2024. Um, uh, you know, they to, to actually start producing the material ready for next year, they have to start that sort of basically 
uh, at the start of the summer, so it'd be too late for that already. Um, apart from that, you know, they haven't got any teams interested, so they they are looking at 2025 for a satellite project, but they have to be able to, to persuade a team to, to, to take one, and to do that, they know they have to build a much more competitive uh, bike. Uh, Lynn uh, Jarvis was saying, you know, we, we know we've got to make a big step with the engine. This is something we're going to do. There's a danger to that because we've seen this year that they've, they've you know, they've got a lot more horsepower, but uh, the bike is now suddenly a lot more aggressive and it's a lot more difficult to actually manage the bike. And it's taken away that sort of sweetness of handling um, that it used to have. So it's just, it, it just becomes very, very, it becomes a lot more difficult um uh, for them to be competitive and to go back to steve's point about needing a sort of input we are uh, like the, there is a lot of talk that uh, jean zarco is going to go to lcr to replace alex rins and that would be that would make a huge amount of sense just because you know he is so experienced he does have um you know he's he's ridden the ktm he's ridden the yamaha he's been extremely competitive on the ducati he is still fast uh he's a known quantity um okay maybe he's not going to win a world championship but it doesn't you know it, that doesn't matter um what matters is that he can be competitive he can get on a uh, uh, on a honda and uh, help to point the whole project in um, uh, in the right direction. We've seen that at Silverstone with Taka Nakagami, we, you know, where, where Nakagami was trying the new aero, um, uh, working on a, trying to find a, a different setup, a different bike balance with the bike for the new aero. And you can certainly see a role as, um, just like Ducati have done with uh, with the Pramac team, where where someone is um, it, where someone in LCR becomes the the development and uh, or a sort of a semi development rider, their test rider at the track. Yeah, and it's important to have that as well, Dave. And what's interesting with Nakagami is one of the big reasons for that is Ayagura, by all accounts, has said I don't want to be a MotoGP rider next year. I, he doesn't want to jump onto that Honda. He wants to be able to try and win a Moto Two World Championship. And can you imagine a situation a few years ago where a Japanese rider that's been brought through the ranks by Honda says, no, I don't want to be on your MotoGP bike. It wouldn't have happened. But he's looking out for himself and that gives Nakagami that opportunity to stick around. Tak has been pretty clear about it as well. He doesn't see a future in the Superbike program for him. So his future lies in being that development mule and taking on the work and having to do that 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 hard task of being able to try and just get the data and the information and that's where for honda at least with nagashima back in japan then you've got two good riders given good information and then you see what happens for that going forward and that's really what honda need to do like you said like you need to be able to have that information and you need to be able to have that role within within your structure to be able to have a rider that can do that it's it's a strange situation to see a grand prix team and rider have to take on that responsibility but it's also just a sign of the times. Yeah, I think that's just the way that MotoGP develops. And like I say, Ducati were the first to do this with the Pramac team really using them as a development platform. Um, it was always the Japanese factories had their factory team where they did everything and then they uh, uh, sort of helped finance their their factory teams by leasing bikes because their bikes were competitive and so everyone wanted them now the bikes aren't competitive nobody wants them they have to give them a different role they have to uh, uh, take you know just take a different approach 
Just about that as well. They've, we're going to take a quick break in a couple of moments' time, but just to finish up this half of the show, the rider market going forward, you mentioned about Zarco potentially going to LCR. That's been one that we first heard rumoured probably about four weeks ago, but now that's really gained a lot of lot of momentum. And from what Zarco was saying at the British Grand Prix, it's pretty clear that's where he thinks his future is going to lie. But the big merry-go-round for the rider market now hinges on what happens with Zarco, where Bezeki goes is probably the, the real key. Does he move to the Pramac team? If he does, Zarco goes to LCO, Morbidelli goes to the VR46 team, and everyone kind of keeps their spa- plates spinning in that uh, in that little triangle. Yeah, you can sort of see that um, Bezeki... The, the big question mark is what Bezeki does. I mean, like Bezeki wants a factory bike. Uh, every rider wants a factory bike. Um, really, what he wants is a factory bike in a factory team, but there isn't a seat in the factory team at the moment, even though uh, I think Enea Bastianini has been extremely disappointing. As I said in the, in the post-Silverstone pod, he's been extremely disappointing. I think it's very, it's very difficult actually fitting into the factory team. Um, but yeah, ha- having a factory bike. But then you do lose that very... A uh, safe uh, environment, which the VL46 team, precisely because you know Pazeki is a VL46 Academy rider, he's in the VL46 team. It's a very safe, very um, supportive environment, and once you move out of that, it gets less and less sort of supportive um, as you move towards the, the the factory team. So, yeah, the, the question is, it really revolves around what Pazeki does, but it makes. I think it would make more sense for Bezeki to go to Pramac uh, and Morbidelli into VR46 um, rather than, you know, Bezeki staying where he is and then for Morbidelli to go to Pramac and get a, uh, a, a, a and get a 20, you know, a, a GP24 where Bezeki is still stuck with the GP23 because we know that the VR46 team are going to be stuck with GP23s next year. Yeah, for, for me, I don't really understand how it's a question mark for Gigatti because Zarko is a very good rider. He's shown that. But he's also shown that he's not a winner. He's been in the MotoGP for long enough. He's won his two Moto2 World Championships. You can't take anything away from him. But as a Premier Class rider, Neil, he hasn't been able to make that final step that he has to make. Bezeki's into the second year of his GP career and he's immediately shown he can win races. He can be that rider. So you'd have to say for all intents and purposes, it's a bit of a no-brainer for them, especially if it means for the VO46 team, then you're able to keep Morbidelli on your bike you're able to keep a very good independent team on side as well by giving them what they want, which is progression for one of their riders into factory seats down the line and you're able to keep one of your own on your bike. So this is one of those key things within the politics of MotoGP that makes too much sense for it not to happen, really. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think Dave said it in one of the pods recently, like Zarko's reached the ceiling. Um, Bezeki certainly hasn't, so it makes sense putting him up um, and you know Zarko seems harsh he's fourth or fifth in the championship at the moment but fifth in the championship I should say um, but yeah uh, there is that feeling that this is basically what he can achieve and Neil just when you look at that as well one of the things that we're obviously hearing in the superbike paddock about our rider market is Jonathan Ray to Yamaha looks very close to happening it looks like Kawasaki's given him until the end of this month there's a, a test next week and that's going to be where they're probably working on a lot of their 2024 stuff. So they want to be able to throw the kitchen sink at Johnny and say, this is the bike you're going to have next year. This is the progress we're making. Let's keep the band together and go for another year. But 
for for Ray, if he wants out and he's willing to pay to get out of his contract, then that's a clear indication that Yamaha's his preferred destination. And then for Kawasaki, they need to have someone that they can put onto that bike that keeps Japan interested, keeps their sponsors interested. And that's where the other part in the MotoGP rider market comes into account, Pedro Acosta. KTM, they, they can't afford to lose Acosta. He's a generational talent. It might all be that he's great in the lower classes and it doesn't work out in the premier class, but you can't afford to take the risk of that given what we've seen from him over the last three years. So KTM have to put him on a bike somewhere. Paulus Bagaro's had his injuries. He's had a tough time this year, but maybe he's the rider that makes way and then Paul fills the void at Kawasaki next year is one of the things that, that we're hearing is a bit of a possibility. Which would be interesting and would obviously solve the the, the conundrum that KTM currently finds itself in. Um, although Paul does have a contract with KTM for next year, um, but if he feels that he's being disrespected by being pushed towards the the kind of test rider role, um, you know, they, they they go with Augusto over him um, to remain as a, as a racer next year, then that's an issue. But considering KTM are pushing so hard to get another team or another seat on the grid or another two seats on the grid for next year. Um, you know, it does indicate that Paul is still very much in their thinking. And, you know, Paul had a great round at Silverstone. Like, it was genuinely impressive how he came back um, in really adverse conditions right across the way across the weekend, how he was able to come, overcome a lot of um, uh, mental... Uh, barriers, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it was it was really impressive. So that, that's interesting, Steve, to 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 hear you say that um, maybe there's a link to, to KRT Kawasaki. Um, and also, wouldn't there be a massive penalty for Jonathan to to have to pay if he was to leave uh, Kawasaki? He would have to pay somewhere in the region of what eight hundred grand. Yeah, and if he's willing to do that, I think that shows you the lens he wants to be on the Yamaha rather than the Kawasaki. I think a fresh challenge. Is always good for a rider, and I think for Ray, if he's willing to walk away from everything at Kawasaki, then I think paying eight hundred grand says that there's there's a big motivation for him to go somewhere else. So that looks like it's as things stand right now that Ray is more likely to be in blue than green next year. But at the end of the day, Kawasaki's goal is going to be to keep Jonathan Ray on the bike. He's won six world championships for him. He's been able to have all that success since twenty fifteen, but you might also have reached the end of the road. And that's where I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens for Kawasaki. And Scott Redding's the other rider being linked with it. Is Redding enough of a rider to keep Japan interested? Maybe, maybe not. You can guarantee that a Catalan rider on the Provec bike is enough to at least keep Provec really interested in their program going forward and try and make it work. So that's where the Paul story has kind of come from in, in the Superbike paddock. But... Obviously, like you said, Ray's got a contract for next year. Paul's got a contract for next year. So it all comes down to what's going to happen in all those situations. I think one of the things that's interesting for me with the KTM situation is, can they afford to have another young rider that's had success in Moto2, won a world championship, and then ditch them after a year? That's probably where some of their motivation to keep Augusto comes from as well. Paul might well have been looked to be that reserve, the test rider role, to try and push that project forward. Augusto's done a good job this year. Maybe there's an element of, for KTM, they have to be able to show that if you progress on a KTM, you're going to get those opportunities down the line. And that could be one of those politics of MotoGP decisions that comes into it a little bit more even than just the flat-out results. Uh, I mean, the other question for me is, if if 
let's say KTM do get sort of, you know, two more bikes on the grid. They've got six bikes. That solves their problem of where do they put uh, Pedro Acosta. But, the, the, you know, the, the bigger question is who do they then put on the second bike? Because it does seem that Mark Marquez is not going to leave Honda uh, for uh, 2024, if he stays with Honda with 2024, they've got to find someone to put on the bike. And again, you know, they're putting someone on the bike. Well, I suppose, you know, at the end of 2024, there's going to be a massive merry-go-round with lots of riders being shifted about. Um, uh, but yeah, if you're on that bike, then you know that there's a very good chance that you're not going to be on that bike after 2024 because someone is going to get shuffled around to make mo- to to make room for uh, uh, for Mark Marquez. Well, the one thing about that, Dave, is there's how many riders are going to step up from Moto Two this year? Yeah, I mean, it's, this, so it's, you're going yeah. to have your choice of riders there, an Arbolino. Maybe you take a chance on someone like Lopez or you, you, you try and figure something out. If it's your sixth seat, you can afford to take a little bit of a risk and then not worry too much about it because one of those young riders will be keen to get onto a MotoGP bike. So there will be someone you can fill onto that seat and just use it as a little bit of a risk-free gamble. And but, if you... Uh, if you're going to have, for example, uh, Jake Dixon moving up to Grassini, that would free up, uh, uh, you know, Di Gian Antone. Obviously, DJ is going to be looking around for a uh, for a bike, and you would have a, um, you'd have someone with experience that you, uh, who's a relatively known quantity you can put on there. But yes, I mean, it does seem that I mean, like you know, Arbolino. The fact that Arbolino doesn't have a a riding MotoGP at the moment is um, uh, sort of mildly disappointing. Um, I mean, Neil, what do you think of Arbolino in, in MotoGP? I mean, it, uh, you would say that he's earned the spot, but at the same time, um, no, he's definitely earned the spot. Um, and, you know, there is a, a lot of talk linking Dixon to, to MotoGP. If it's at the expense of Tony Arbolino, I think Tony could feel aggrieved, rightly feel aggrieved. Um, but... You know, staying in a team like Martin VDS and having a chance to, to possibly defend your Moto Two crown isn't necessarily the the worst thing either. So, you know, one way or the other, he'll be in Moto GP by two thousand twenty five. Um, but yeah, I can understand his uh, his slight frustration at um, you're not being like a, a designated seat for him just yet. Obviously enough, there's a little bit of frustration for us as well because we have to cut this short, take an ad break, and then when we come back. We'll hear from Jack Miller, who sat down with Dave at uh, the British Grand Prix. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Neil, just before we hear from Jack Miller, I need to ask you something. You've outscored me by an average of two points in the MotoGP fantasy per round. How am I going to beat you this week? <laughs> um, I don't know. Take a risk, maybe, because I've got three big names in my in my team. And I'm, I'm kind of wary of taking them out because they're the top three in the championship. So oh, oh. if you stuck someone like Miller, Binder or... Alation, they're possibly going to to have a good one, but I'm always of the opinion that either Bezeki, Martino, or Banyai are going to be the men. So I've just stuck with them for the past what five races, I think. Yeah, that's fair enough. I've got uh, I do have Bezeki and Bagnaya in there on my team, and then I've got Luca Marini, who I don't really want to have on my team anymore 
but I've struggled to get rid of him. I did take a risk last time by putting Aprilia in as my team, though, and that paid off big time, and that's how I managed to claw back some points on you. David, for you in MotoGP fantasy, um, you just need to show some interest in it, man. Like, what's going on <laughs> with you? You're pretty much last with the Moto Martinators. It's the best name in the group, but it's a shit team. Yes, it is indeed. It's because what what, what keeps happening is every time someone has a really bad... I mean, it's just my strategy is just absolutely useless because every time someone has a really bad race, their value drops. And then I decide to... to, to um, uh, to drop them out of my team. And so I end up losing money on every single trade. Neil, just about Dave's team, because it is an interesting team, I have to say. He must be the only player in MotoGP Fantasy with two Honda riders and Raul Fernandez in his team. At least you got Bezeki. He's getting some good points more often than off you, Dave. But uh, having Nakagami, Fernandez and Mark isn't going to be a recipe for success this year, is it, Neil? I mean, yeah, the... The oracle of MotoGP is just uh, losing credibility by the weekend. I was, I was, I was just looking and thinking. You know what? I should really get because um, uh, I think I could just about afford um, uh, Oliveira if I shift some stuff around. So uh, yeah, well, th- that might be a better option for me. I do have to say that there are some people doing a really good job in our fantasy. So check out the Paddock Pass Podcast Twenty Twenty Three League on MotoGP Fantasy, Dave. We're going to finish off today's show with your chat with Jack Miller. And 20 minutes with Jack is always good 20 minutes to have. But uh, he was very interesting about the changes from Ducati to KTM and a few other topics over the course of this season as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, again, I'm almost ashamed because I, uh, when I was writing my season preview, I didn't even mention Jack Miller because he'd just been so sort of faceless um at the during testing you know they'd been they'd been he'd been sort of no, nowhere and then once the season got underway jack has been and ktm have been absolutely outstanding jack has been particularly strong you know much much stronger than i expected um so yeah i mean it, it was very interesting talking about uh, sort of some of the steps they made and how they sort of put everything together at the last day, uh, the last day of testing, and the progress that they've made, and how the bike is really, really competitive. I think we saw um, uh, Mark Marquez on Service TV saying that you know, look, it really is looking like the KTM is on its way to being the number one ma- manufacturer in MotoGP. Uh, and you know, the, the thing that Jack Miller was saying is, you know yeah we really have made some progress and he talks a lot about like basically his input into moto gp his input into the program in into ktm and how he's helped it all along i think one of the things that's been impressive for jack this year is his qualifying performances as well though because we've seen it really from once we got to europe at Hareth all the way through i think there was only maybe the dutch tt where he wasn't in the top two rows of the grid in the qualifying session so that's a good indication of a rider feeling good with the bike nail and certainly this weekend he's going to think he's going to be able to add to his he's had three podiums in austria already on the ducati and he'll certainly think that he can add to that tally i think that's a that's a good one certainly in the sprint race jack has been has been really strong in those races because the qualifying has been so good, um, but yeah, you, there's no reason to think that um, that the, both the, the factory KTM's can't be can't be up there and fighting. Um, just considering how strong they've been on the brakes, when we've gone to certain brake-heavy circuits like Hareth, um, they have been spectacular. So, yeah, I think they'll be expecting big things. And the other people that'll be expecting big things are our Paddock Pass podcast patrons as well. We're obviously 
back to a Grand Prix weekend this weekend, which means we're going to have our Paddock Notes show Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where you can sign up for a free trial if you're not already a patron and see what the Paddock Notes shows are all about. It's basically a 20-minute version of this podcast, just reviewing the action each day straight from the rider debriefs. We're able to bring you all the news from the racetrack. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. David, Neil, it's been great having you on the show again, and uh, we'll be back next week to review the Austrian Grand Prix, but we're going to play out the show now with Red Bull KTM rider Jack Miller giving his thoughts on the 2023 campaign so far. Uh, hello and welcome to a rental street session with Jack Miller, MotoGP rider for the Red Bull KTM factory racing team. Um, well, I shall start off with a confession. Uh, the In my season preview, I didn't even mention you because I didn't think you were going to do anything because all through testing you were... Average? Shit? No, I mean, invisible. You seem to be yeah. sort of, uh, you know, out there, You were not, not looking to trouble the top ten. No, I mean, um, don't get me wrong, it wasn't that I wasn't trying, um, but we had a lot on our plate at that point in time in terms of um, just trying to understand everything in such a short amount of time. With the way that the, uh, you know, the winter testing program is now, it's it's bloody tight, you know, uh, to one day in Valencia, which is kind of fucking useless, yeah. um, you, you know, on the track that you've raced on all weekend, um, loads of rubber, lots of rubber. You've had one day off and then you're straight on another bike and essentially got to tell them what you want to change for next year. We did our thing there, sort of shook down the bike, understood, felt my pros and cons, um, tried to give us clear feedback. But definitely, I think one of the things I've learned um, as I get older is is just trying to be more clear with my feedback, not overloading, not, not, um, not getting too carried away at the end of the day, just trying to be as clear and precise as I can be with my comments. And that's it, not trying to tell them 10,000 different things that are wrong and just focus on the biggest issues and work your way down and um and yeah that's what we did i mean um but malaysia was another one where we just sort of had to sort of understand and try to develop 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 and then it wasn't really until the last day in testing in um portimao where i was kind of able to be like oh, there's something here you know we, we like in terms of my speed and, and where i felt on the bike um and i kind of went away from that test feeling a little bit confident even though maybe you guys wouldn't have seen it but definitely just you know what it takes to to throw a decent lap in when you when you've done them you know throughout your career um you know how far away you are or not you'll lie to yourself a lot yeah. more than others but um but uh yeah i felt um i you know we went away from that test with uh, a decent feeling and and with a few minor tweaks i felt like and and you know essentially putting the balls on the table as well we were going to be able to you know fire it in there at least at that track because at the end of the day every track you go to is kind of new you don't know how you're going to feel how the bike's going to feel so um and yeah it ended up coming out all right and Porty Mao we were there um challenged to the front for a bit weekend and yeah I mean apart from Argentina they're pretty weekend the results generally haven't finished that way I mean yeah. we've been there or thereabouts but not on the podium, certainly, but nor has many of you guys. But, uh, but we're getting because uh, I mean it's interesting you say about prioritising because uh, yeah you, you know all of these things which are wrong but you, the, you, is it experience that tells you okay if we fix this first then that's, that's going to make the biggest yeah exactly exactly that's the the the, the logic behind that um, the uh, you know prioritising understanding right this is limiting me the most now. And then, okay, once we've sort of eliminated that problem, well, what's that 
what problem does that create then? Because yep. you know, Newton Newton's law. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you know, there's always going to be another reaction. Yeah. And okay, if that's created a problem, or if it's completely eliminated, and then okay, well that's fixed. Now let's try and sort this out and try and make that working. And okay, it's just constantly moving up the ladder, yeah. I guess you could say. And uh, yeah, that's the biggest thing is just trying to to. Almost like cup. Compartmentalise. That's the one. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. But yeah, compartmentalise. Uh, Chop things up, up exactly. into blocks. In, exactly. And trying to go through in a, in a process, basically. Yeah. And, and I think that was the biggest thing for me is just to try and not focus on lap time and not focus on any of that shit throughout the test yeah. because there'd be plenty of time for that throughout the year. It was more understanding what the bike needed and what I needed throughout that time rather than wasting my time and wasting tyres and energy on, on trying to put myself at the top, you know, in the morning when the track's cold or whatever, as so often goes in testing. Yeah, because at the end it's only testing and you're not going to... I mean, like the longer I do this, more I understand that testing, you can't really read all that much into it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I've been at the other end of the scale where I've top testing and been under like records and... and Felt like a legend going on the first race and turned to shit as soon as we're going racing. So you'd rather have it the other way around. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Any day of the week. So um, you know, it's just one of those things. I think you learn as you get older, and you know, you've done this more, more, more times than not. Um, you know, it's just about learning, I guess. What do you think you brought to KTM? Because it seems like, I mean, um, riders matter to the development progress but what is to a process but what's much more important is the way that engineers listen to riders because that varies hugely between factories and it feels like your influence has been bigger than normally when a rider swaps i think you know stepping in this role they knew what they were getting in terms of i i don't want to blow my own horn or or anything like that because it's not me at the end of the day i'm riding the bike and those guys are designing the bike and they're doing a fantastic job um, I think one of the biggest things that we needed over here and one of the biggest things that I bought is my outlook on racing and how I look at big picture. Um, you know, how with one weekend or one bad session, not instantly turning around and getting into this mode where saying the bike is shit, which happens more often than not these days that people get into this rut and it becomes the bike shit, the bike shit, this is shit. And you look at it in, in a negative light Rather than looking at, it's like looking at the glass half empty and the glass yeah, half full. Yeah, yeah. Rather than looking at the glass as half empty, look at it as half full and, you know, look at the positives and say, all right, if we fix this and fix that, it'll be great. Try to be positive and bring a, a positive atmosphere into, not bringing a negative atmosphere into it because of that, if the rider rocks up and he's bringing that attitude, that, that then rubs off on the engineers and that then rubs off and then the whole team becomes depressed. Yeah. And you're not looking forward to going away racing, you know, and you're not looking forward to, to whatever and even if things do go right yeah but it's going to be shit again next week yeah. it's not a way to look at it that's that's the worst way you can do and that's the worst mindset you can sort of get into i think that's been one of the biggest things that's um that's helped yeah. as well as obviously my um my experience my my time spent at ducati my time spent at honda you know riding these different varieties of bikes throughout the years and working with some amazing engineers i've been able to learn from them and and understand you know what direction if the bike's doing this what direction do i feel we need to go and not that i'm telling the engineers what to do or anything like that because i'm not that's Mm. one thing that i think i'm very clear on is i'm not an engineer i'm a rider i'll tell you my problems you tell me the solution i'm not going to come in 
I want the you you're going to come in and say I want the bike to do this. Yeah, it feels so it feels light in the front end. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to go tell them. Oh, I'll go and put the forks down five mil. No, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. my job. That's your job to understand. Okay, oh, we might go up with a pivot, or we might do this. That's that's you. You know the bike better than I do. Because you actually do have a reasonable understanding of the of, course, of, of course. the dynamics. Because a lot of riders don't, don't but yeah. you do actually know roughly I know what how, things I know can how do. a bike works, and I know you know what I if I want this. I'm going to go, if it was me, I'd do that. Yeah. But. You're not I, as I, smart I, as these guys. No, exactly. Exactly. I, I Literally, I dropped out of school at grade 10. I'm not an engineer. A lot of these guys have gone to university, have done master's degrees, and are a lot fucking smarter than I am. Yeah. And that's their job. And they've been doing it, you know. I've been, I'd say, you know, they talk about me now, I'm a veteran. <laughs> I'm not a veteran. Like, guys like Pippi, my crew chief, has been here for well over 20 years, long, nearly longer than I've been on this earth. Yeah. He's a veteran. He yeah. knows what he's... He's been around the block a few times. And you need to trust those guys and you need to put your faith. That's the whole idea of having that that relationship between yourself and the crew chief and then your engineers is to trust them and not to tell them what to do. Um, because I find some people get to a point and they think that they're a fucking engineer yeah. more than they are a rider. And then you start taking energy away from what is your job here on the track and focusing more energy over here when you need to separate it and say, right, I'm not an engineer. I tell you the problem. You tell me what you're going to do and I'll ride it. And that's it. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, having that experience and being able to, to bring my understanding of the, how the bike's set up, what the bike feels like, what I think the bike needs, you know, in terms of stability, balance, so on and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, just seeing the bike last year on track and seeing, you know, um, where they're at in terms of engine and so on, I think I was able to, to like look from the outside and feel quietly confident that power is not really their issue. Yeah. They didn't have an issue with power. And that's a big problem in this, in this championship, yeah. especially nowadays. You want a bike with power. And KDM have never been one to, to, to shy away from power. They've got plenty there. Um, I think when you think of power, you think of two manufacturers. Uh, in the past, it was always obviously Ducati. And I think when you think of power now, you think of Ducati and you think of KDM, especially yeah. in MotoGP. Yeah, it used of, to be Ducati and Honda. And yeah. now it was like almost like a, a exactly. horsepower war. And now it's Ducati and KTM. Exactly. But the, the, the it's not just horsepower. You have to be able to use to it. To use it, exactly. And that was the biggest thing was I think, well, especially last year, they weren't able to use it in the correct way. And it's in terms of geometry and in terms of the engine characteristics um we've been able to change that and 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 move forwards and make it a lot more right user friendly um and a lot more stable over the race yeah um which brings me to sort of like the last subject i wanted to talk about which is um one thing in my mind was you and brad at jerez um the way that you were breaking into dry sack um is that six six yeah right uh you've got it sideways and it seems like that was a way of keeping the load off of the front mm -hmm. because it seems like um, the front, the, the the aerodynamics, all this horsepower is going into um, overcoming drag to uh, uh, to get better acceleration. Um, but that is loading the front more and more and putting more more load into the front tire, making that more critical. It's always the way, though. Um, if you look back as far as racing. As far as I've been watching racing, um, whether if you look back to uh, the Bridgestone era of Mark with Bridgestones, yep. um, watch any of those old races. Mark, okay, maybe not to the degree, and also like my slide, degree of Brad's slide. Yep. Brad's slide was bigger than mine. But it's something that you do, and as a motorcycle rider, you do it more 
you know, quite often, um, if you don't have the, or if you feel like you're overloading the front, one way to, let's say, bypass that issue or take some of that load away from the front is try to stop with the rear. Yeah. And the safest and easiest way to do that is by backing the bike in, yeah. like a super motard, again, because it's such a high, you know, center of gravity and the bike's doing a lot of pitching. So if you go like that, the thing's going to instantly want to yeah. go on the front tire and also lock the front tire yeah. if, if the grip's not there. Whereas if you can create that slide, you bring the center of gravity down, you're sliding the bike, you're actually using the rear brake and the rear tire to gets, stop the bike. That's right, because the bike is also getting on a bit of an angle, so you've got a little bit more tire. Yeah, you're loading into the into the bike, into the frame, yeah, and and just putting taking some of that strain off the front and spreading it out, spreading the load throughout the bike. And for corners like that, like like you say, last corner, turn six and Jerez, it worked really, really well. And they're the corners where... And that's been, let's say, the race where we could make the most out of that slide. And that's the biggest thing is we've been trying to work on is trying to implement that into our riding, into our bike to work at other circuits. Yeah. Whether it be Le Mans yeah. or, or, you know, places like uh, Magello. Yeah, but it's hard. It's Red hard. Bull ring, Red Bull Ring should be good. You know, even, even on, on the Ducati and Red Bull Ring, I mean, I constantly did that. Yeah, Scandinavian flick up into the top corner, um, simply because I could stop the bike better with it like yeah. that, and it felt safer. You feel like you're eliminating some of the risk, um, but definitely that was like the best feeling you can get in the front tire in terms of a corner like that. But yeah, uh, it, it's something that it's not only the KDM or only Brad and I that do it. It's something that's been done countless amount of times throughout history in terms of racing. Yeah. Even if you look back to the Rossi era, obviously, before slipper clutches and so on, but they had those things pretty sideways going into corners. And Nicky and, was uh, yeah, exactly. glorious for that, yeah. Exactly, and it's just a, it's not a Band-Aid, but it's kind of a, a rider's way of bypassing a problem or yeah. a rider's way of trying to push that li limit a little bit further away. So you're not solely relying on the front. You're kind of spreading that load out, as I said. Right, last question. Uh, when this project, this KTM project was... Uh, launch. Uh, Stefan Pira said, you know, when KTM go racing, they go racing to win. Mm -hmm. um, this feels like the first season where that uh, the potential for that could happen. Now, I think it would be difficult with Peko and all the rest of it, but you, what are you, what are you all Definitely, thinking? definitely. There's a championship coming. I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, this year's going to be a long shot, but anything can happen. I mean, if you look at the first half of the season and with the injuries, and not that you wish that on anybody, no. but I mean, it could. It's part could, of motorcycle it, Exactly, racing. it's all a part of it. And um, we all have good luck and we all have bad luck, and that's the way it goes. And uh, yeah, those boys have been, especially those three Ducatis sort of at the front, they've been strong all year. They've been there uh, all year. And we've had our moments where we've been strong and we've had our moments where we've been strong and thrown it in the bin. Um, and, you know, I look back on that and it, of course, pisses you off. But it's it, 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 after you take, like we've had now five weeks off, you take some stock and understand, all right, you're actually in a better position than maybe you thought at midway through last year where you'd be. You know, you thought it'd be a longer slog than this. So it's a good problem to have. And it's not that you're throwing it out of you know, 15th, you're throwing it out of a, a solar position. Um, a lot of the times it's been podium position. So um, so it's it's a good problem to have. And, um, you know, I was being very optimistic early on. It's getting harder and harder and we're not clawing back as many points as we need to be or any. 
So um, the plan is in the second half of the season, obviously, is to try and claw back as many points as possible. But if we can crack that top five, I think that'll be an unreal way to start out our first season with these guys. And it's not too far off, you know, where the points are pretty close there uh, up to that position. And um, and there's a lot of points on offer still to go. So um, It's the one thing about the sprint race. All of a I mean. sudden there's... You, you know, know how many points that are still 12 trillion points to go exactly yeah. i mean so there's a lot that can happen and um we just got to be there each weekend and and you know maybe try to learn to to settle a little bit more um but that's the beauty of being on this bike is it gives me confidence to it gives you extra confidence and sometimes that's a bad thing for a rider because then you push a little bit too far but it's a better to have that problem and be able to scale it back than feel like nah, i can't overtake i yeah. don't feel strong enough to overtake I've never felt that with this bike. Every time I get next to somebody, I feel like I can break later than them. I feel like I can stop my bike and, and make the corner. And that's a good problem to have because we were able to fix our bike sort of midway through last year. But especially when we changed last year, the, the bike and the way that the, the direction went up until Barcelona, honestly, I felt like shit. It felt like I couldn't pass anybody. You could get yourself there sideways or side by side and then maybe force a block pass. But in terms of outright braking and, and trying to stop the bike quicker than somebody else or in a shorter distance than somebody else, I didn't feel. And that was one of the first times in my career that I've ever felt like that. So having this bike that you feel is quite nimble and quite a good bike for fighting, like with some of the passes that we've done, whether it be with Mark fighting in, in uh, Le Mans or, you know, the boys in Portimao or, or wherever, even Austin, there's been countless, or, or Jerez. If you look back to the past, at races that I uh, that I did on the Ducati, a lot of times I got passed. Not a lot of times I was able to pass back immediately, yeah. or or you know take my time, or it wouldn't be until say somebody's tire went off, or or I felt like the the advantage or the weight shifted. Um, whereas this thing, I feel like I can fight. Can force it. Yeah, and I can force it, which is um, you know a nice problem to have. But then it's just understanding how to manage that and don't get too confident, don't get too cocky with it and learn the limits of the bike and learn it's talking to you in this way because that's another thing with this thing. It's steel chassis, WP suspension, everything's different. So it talks to you in a little different way and just, just learning how to, it's like reading Braille. You kind of got to feel it out and understand what it's telling you. And that's been the biggest thing is just, especially in this five weeks, thinking about that and just understanding, right, you need to, you know what you've learned, for example, races like Texas and, and Assen. And places like that. And Assen was a strange one. It was a shitty one, but it, I needed to learn from that. And I understand, right, it was maybe too early. The bike definitely let me know beforehand that it was maybe a little bit slippery or whatever, and you asked too much from it. So it's just becoming one with your bike and making it second nature is all it is. And, and we, we're on our way. And I think, you know, having this five weeks has been good to, to sort of reset, think about a lot of things, and come back and try and implement them in the second half of the season. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jack. No guns. No.